Origin Story Podcast, Episode 7. It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to May's The Origin Story Podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to introduce you guys to an actor named Steve Coulter. Uh, Steve is one of those guys who has been around for several, several years. He has almost 90 credits on his IMDb page. He has worked with unbelievable people like Barry Levinson and Al Pacino. He has upcoming stuff with Kevin Costner and Ryan Gosling and Damien Chazelle, the director uh, who directed La La Land. And he's also a writer. He also has a brand new Lifetime movie that is currently airing. I think it debuted this past Sunday evening called Harry and Meghan, A Royal Romance. And we discussed that for a little while. He actually plays Prince Charles, the future King of England. And earlier tonight on my actual television, I did see Steve Coulter playing Prince Charles. Uh, and Steve and I, we talk about a lot, really. We actually talk, don't talk about some things that seem that seem obvious. We don't really talk about what's it like on the set of The Walking Dead. We don't really talk about what filming House of Cards was like. And because of that, we might do a round three or round two, depending on how you're counting it, later on. But what we do talk about is his process of preparing to audition. We talk about what it is really like uh, struggling in New York back when New York was a lot tougher than it is now. We talk about what the market was like in Atlanta before the tax breaks and what it's like after the tax breaks. Obviously, it's a lot better now. But Steve was able to make a living in Atlanta as an actor before there was a ton of production here. We also talk about just the ups and downs of trying to make your living in this industry. Uh, if you have anybody who is an actor, who's a friend who wants to be an actor, uh, if you have children who are thinking about being actors, I would think this is a really good one to listen to. Steve is very raw and very honest about the highs of this profession and the lows of this profession. And he, I think he gives some really great advice to anybody thinking about giving it a shot. Uh, He's a working actor, and that is something that I 100% completely admire, and I think you guys will too. So without further ado, join us for part one of the Origin Story Podcast with Steve Coulter. Steve Coulter. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, first of all, on behalf of all uh, American actors, can I just say... Thank you. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know you represent them all. That's neat. That's I know. Yeah. You know, this wow. in this one particular instance, I am. Uh, can you guess why I might be thanking you? No. That I, no. Well, you know, as you know, from having been on Walking Dead and just been around, there are a lot of times British actors come over here and play oh. American roles. And you've gotten one back for us. I did. I understand. <laughs> yes, I did. So what role is that? Can you tell me a little bit That's about that? The, yeah, it's playing in the... Uh, uh, Movie uh, uh, Harry and Meghan, a royal romance. And who uh, do you play? I am Prince Charles. Damn straight uh, yeah, you are. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, it was funny. one of the first things I thought was, yeah, it's about time that you know we we took one back. Exactly. Because yeah, especially you look on TV series, almost well again, Walking Dead has like five British actors, and mm-hmm. almost what really bothers me though, I remember years ago. Um, did you ever read Cold Mountain? Yes, and I'm a huge Charles Fraser fan. Like one of the quintessential American, you can't think of a more American novel. Right. And it was, and so um, then Anthony Minghella, who's you know fine, great director, British, um, and then yeah, Ju- was Jude Law, Nicole Kidman. Mm-hmm. They had Renee Zellweger, really one American. And they shot it in like Romania or Czechoslovakia, and I remember I got the they had they shot for about a week I think in North Carolina, which is where it should have been shot. And I remember I actually got an audition years for some one liner uh, to audition for it, and I was so uh, adamant about it. I I turned down the audition. Not that I you know it's like who cares like it's fine, right? Because I was so so upset that they weren't. Using American actors and shooting it in the in the states, but right? And this is back when North Carolina was still there was still yeah, a decent amount of production was back very then. Busy, and you see the there was also a recent uh, uh, I think it was a I think it was an independent film about the relationship between uh, um, Thomas Wolfe and his editor Max Perkins, mm. and I thought again a quintessential American writer and uh, editor, you know, history making. And it was, I think it was, again, Jude Law and um, uh, the actor from uh, The King's Speech, uh, Colin Oh, Curry. Colin. Again, yeah. two really, really good actors. Great, great actors, but however. Let them do, you know, and again, I don't mind that, but I do mind it when it's a really, really American, but then here's a little uh, uh, addendum. I'm Canadian, so I'm outraged for America. Uh, yeah, but I've been... <laughs> But I've been in. I've lived in the states since I was two, and I, uh, uh, so I can't vote. But I still, I just feel so. Um, I feel like I've just completely canceled out anything I've said about. But I don't know anything. About we, we might much have lost, more, we might have lost a little credibility yeah. with this now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. You were born in Montreal, right? Yeah. Or or whenever, there, and whenever, like on Twitter, if I get into any kind of uh, political debate. Someone will Google or something, and then they'll come out and like, all right, good. You're just you're piggybacking on our country. Stop taking it. Yeah, so really, but, yeah. Twitter brings out the best They're in everyone. Nasty. I've been what do you call it, trolled? I once made the mistake of, you know, I wasn't quite awake yet, and saw <laughs> someone had posted something ridiculous, and uh, I just said, why don't you need to just. Go back to your caves. Not a very that's not a really good thing to say. And I didn't realize the guy had like 1.2 million followers, and so the walls. I just got deluged with. So was this caught. was this political postings, or was this from like horror film people? No, no, or it, like, no, no. It was, was it was a political post. He, I'd said someone who was criticizing Joe Biden in a really foul way, accusing him of being a pedophile because he like put his hand on a child's head. And I said, just go back to your caves. Right. And that they sent me. They said, oh, since I'd done like House of Cards, oh, why don't you, what about your buddy Kevin Spacey? You didn't mind when Kevin Spacey was abusing children? And I was like, oh. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, I learned my lesson. (laughs) (laughs) You have a, hello, you have a cat. We have two cats. And I forgot to ask if you were allergic to cats. No, I love cats. So Karen Cisse, do you know, do you know Karen? 
Yeah, the actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah. was. Just, she's been on the podcast, and we came here, and like she took one step inside, oh, and like both cats allergy. looked at her. Oh yeah, oh. and they were. You could just see like oh. the fear on her face. So, <laughs> where did you did you talk? We so? went in the front yard. Oh, it was very nice. Nice. We had like birds oh, chirping, nice. you know. Yeah, it was very pleasant. Uh, so you filmed uh, this. Was the, this was filmed in Vancouver. The, the uh, yeah, the, the the Harry and Meghan. We shot it in. We spent about three four weeks in Vancouver, um, and they did all the locations looked very very British. They did their homework because um, apparently several years ago there was another movie about Prince William and Kate's marriage. It may even have been Lifetime as well. But they shot it in Los Angeles, and apparently you could see, like, it's supposed to be England. Right. And you could see, like, palm trees and stuff. So I think they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. Um, and, uh, and then the last, we went down to Los Angeles to part of the film takes place in Africa. Because uh, Charles took his boys, right after Diana died, he took them to Africa to just sort of get away from it. And also Harry took his fiancée to Africa because he had fond memories there. So we went to the ranch. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles. It's the same ranch where they shoot um, uh, Westworld. Oh, which wow. I'm a big Westworld fan. So, and they had the house. Uh, that's where you could get cell reception, by the way. You had to go up to the Westworld house. Oh, that's cool. But it really does look like... Because uh, when, when I first got the job, I thought, oh, I get to go to Africa. And I was like, no. Mm, you're right. Africa. Um, but uh, yeah, it, oddly enough, it's supposed to be Botswana, and uh, and they showed me pictures of Botswana, and it looks like Botswana. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I presume you're doing a received pronunciation uh, dialect with that, or is there it's like a, it's a very yeah? Because Charles, not only does he have specific vocal patterns, but it's such a proper British accent. And I'd never done actually. It was weird when I when I lived in New York. The first two, three years I was there, the only acting jobs I got... Well, I didn't get any acting jobs the first year. That wasn't pretty. But when I started, when I did a lot of regional theater, and I was always getting cast in some kind of British dialect. It was usually uh, working class and, or very obscure, like Northern England, uh, Newcastle. And I never had to do a very proper British uh, dialect, which is really tricky. And I also knew he's such a public person. I knew I had to nail that. So I just drilled it and drilled it and drilled it and drilled it and listened to hours and hours of interviews with him, um, which was kind of fun. Because he's actually, a, people think of Prince Charles, they think, oh, he's the one that was mean to Diana, which is, there's, he's quite a great man. He was involved in fighting climate change. Not fighting, I mean, bringing it to the court like 30 years ago, way before Al Gore or anybody. Oh, wow. He puts his money where his he raises his kids, and raised his kids, and he himself thinks that you know they've been given so much, we have to give back and serve, and he, and he puts his it's not just with money he's hands on, and so that was really kind of cool. That is very and cool. He's a good dad, so that's awesome. Yeah. And so that will this will come out on Tuesday. And I know this, the, this was, oh, the yeah, movie premieres Sunday, correct? Yes, yes, Sunday night. Well, I looked, and it's also, they're playing it basically all week. So this is going to yeah, come on Tuesday. Probably, so yes, it's, it's, yeah. So people um, should check that out. Yes, and if you live in England, it's on Monday, I think. So, whatever. Phew, that's crazy. That's very strange. Yeah, it's uh, strange, the obsession with, Americans' obsession with royalty. I don't have that. Uh, but it's, it's kind of Do you weird. think that still exists? It, well, because you go to the grocery store, and 
every week it's Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, da, 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 da. and when the, their twins were just the, the Harry's twins. I don't know why people think that. Remember, Diana was a phenomenon. Right. Someone was telling me there were like, how many, like 700 million people watched that wedding? And I just, I don't, maybe it's, you remember the, the kind of, I wouldn't say obsession, but the attraction to the Kennedys. Like, I don't know if it's, we just right. like storybooky kind of things, especially the world we live in, maybe something that harkens back to a simpler time. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand it either. I studied, you know, some of that. We studied like the Edwardian and kind of Victorian yeah, period, yeah. like in acting school. But, you know, even then I was like, okay, this is awesome and fun and ridiculous. Yeah, it is kind of ridiculous. And it's like, but it's, it's and it, I, get, I get it, part of it is just tradition. And because and, one of the things that Charles talks about in the movie is, is is dignity and just try it's a stability thing and i think there's something about that that are just something that is persistent and and has always been there and it gives it does give a kind of stability in the crazy world but if yeah if you really look at it it's like looking at the mormon religion even though i know a lot of really nice mormons when you realize when you read what the origins of it you're like that's insane <laughs> that sucks that is very very true all right so you're born in canada you're born in montreal when yeah. you said two when you're two you came I was, over? I was almost three yeah my dad he got a job he was a salesman uh, in aluminum and uh we moved to connecticut when i was about th- almost three uh, and I've lived in the States. Well, we lived in South America, too, as a kid. Oh, really? Um, but I've never lived... Like, when I actually... When I was up in Vancouver for that shoot, uh, that's the longest I've been in, in Canada for an extended period of time since I was a kid. Do you we, still have family there? Yeah, my sister lives in Edmonton, uh, which I thought was near... It's, like, it's not near Vancouver. <laughs> um, and I have, like, cousins and things still up there somewhere. But, uh, yeah... And I, ha- I still have my citizenship, because you never know. In the, yeah. in the current I like, climate. I feel like when, you might have already gone if you were going to go. Like, what are you waiting on now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I go, people say, are you going to come back? Uh, <laughs> Maybe. Uh, we'll see. So, um, so, like, high school. So, where were you for, like, formative years, like, high school type stuff? We moved, like, we were in, like, you know, it was elementary schools in, in uh, uh, it was We lived in Westport, which is kind of... Not the rich side of town. That's where like Paul Newman lived. We lived in kind of near the highway, um, and then we moved to South America, which was weird because I went. It was a very traditional. You know, I, I lived in a neighborhood where all the kids were my age, so we were playing you know, baseball and stuff all day. And then when I was nine, we moved to Colombia, South America. Uh, it was back before the drug cartels. It was a really idyllic place, kind of, but it was like being dropped on the surface of Mars because everyone spoke Spanish. Um, and that's where I was there until I was about 13. And then we moved back from there to Cleveland, Ohio, which was a real, that was a culture shock because I was ninth grade and I'd come from a school, it was kind of an international school. All the, all the teachers were former Peace Corps uh, teachers, so they were really young and excited. And there was right. a couple of Vietnam, my, the first sort of drama guy I worked with was a Vietnam vet in a wheelchair. And again, these were all really passionate people um but then I moved to cleveland and i was like oh my god i didn't know what like a click was i remember mm. the day before ninth grade started i was listening to a talk radio show and everyone was talk, calling in about oh i'm so afraid of the clicks and i didn't know like what the is hell that the click? some <laughs> yeah like, monster <laughs> with claws it is kind of a monster with claws <laughs> right. um but yes yeah, so I, I and i was mostly in high school in in cleveland ohio 
Okay. Which is, it's not, it's a little more interesting now. They have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they didn't have that. Is that, did you start acting in high school? Was it? Yeah, I, I did a little bit in South America. I went to see a play. There was a, like a community theater of interna- uh, the Americans and British people. They would just do play. And I went to see some silly romantic comedy. Uh, it was like called 40 Carats or something. I can't remember. But I remember being, me and my friend Franz Vetiger went to see it. And I remember being so taken with it. And I was a really shy kid, but I remember going backstage and asking for the director and saying, how can we get involved? And I actually didn't get involved there, but me and my friend, we like put on a, we produced a play at, the, at our school in the eighth grade or something called Fit to be Tied. It was about getting accidentally handcuffed to the girl you have a big crush on. Outstanding. High concept from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was groundbreaking, Michael. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that, yeah, and then I did when I got to high school, again, very, I was probably the ugliest child in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. I got, I grew like a foot in a year, and I had acne, and long, I used to like put a, what do you call a, down here they call it a toboggan, a toque, a uh, stocking. A toque, yeah. To straighten my hair, because I had weird hair, and I had braces on the top and the bottom. And, I'm, and I joined drama because I thought, well, that's something I like to do. And I was so afraid of humans. And I remember I did a play called The Lottery, you know, based on Shirley Jackson's short story. Yeah, I love that story. And I played Old Man Warner. It was ninth grade. And I was at my locker after, you know, you did like a uh, midday assembly. I was at my locker and this guy came by. And I know he was trying to give me a compliment. Oh, dear. But he said, man, you are so ugly. You know, and I didn't have any makeup. <laughs> And I was like, he said it, and I was like, thanks. Thanks, thanks I think. And I was like, okay. That kind of stuck in my head. So did you know then? Like, I mean, if you're producing a play at, you know, in the eighth grade and then no, doing I it. I just on, really you... loved doing it. And I didn't, and, and uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I just, I, re- I really, really liked doing it. And uh, um, I did a lot of plays in high school. And... Um, and I had a choice that when I I think when I knew I was I wanted to do it with like for a living, it was in my senior year of high school. I got um, I'd always played a lot of soccer, but never on a on a team so to speak. As a kid, I played a lot, but I really wanted to be on a, 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 a you know a high school team. That main you know, and I made it to the varsity soccer team, and so we were I made it like halfway through the season, and then they were doing um, the play the night throw spent in jail. Mm. And the director asked me if I would do it, and I was like, and I had to sit because I was like, well, here I am, finally on a soccer team. I wasn't playing a whole lot, um, but I did score a goal, goal against Chagrin Falls from midfield. Oh. Uh, yeah, I went. To, I actually went to a uh, Atlanta United game, and uh, I told my girlfriend Mary, I, I pointed out, see where midfield is. I kicked a goal, and she said, "Yeah, you've told me that." Like, <laughs> yeah, but now we're here at a field, and I, I can, know, like, I can, I can, yeah, I can visually ex- show that you is exactly what I this said. This whole time you've been having to imagine this, right? That's exactly <laughs> what I said. It's sad, but that is exactly what I said. So I had to make a choice, and I said, "Well," and I remember talking to the director, and I said, uh, and then I went to my soccer coach, and I said, "You know, first of all, it means so much because it was very hard to make the team, and I didn't want to like just." throw it off and and, uh, and well, I especially to, this is a goal that you've had yeah and I, and I was like and I, I wanted to let him know how grateful I was that I made the team and I, and I, I wasn't just 
you know, I was giving it a lot of thought, and I said, but this is kind of what I want to do with my life, and this is a, I kind of, and he totally, he understood, and he was very appreciative, of it. but it was very hard to do that. But that's when I think I knew uh, how seriously I was taking it. And then I found out, and I'm, I trained in a conservatory school, because um, I'd, I'd taken some classes at the Cleveland Playhouse, which is the main regional theater in, in Cleveland. Yeah, and a good one. Yeah, it was really, really good. And the actors there, that was back when you would have a company of actors for a whole year. Mm. Most of them were from New York. They're very good. You know, so you'd have a guy playing a smaller role in Like of Mice and Men one night, and then the next night he was doing the lead in Richard III. It was really kind of cool. It's what we were trained to do in acting school, but by the time we graduated... Uh, repertory companies didn't really exist, but that so that's what and, and a couple of those people had trained at the school, North Carolina School of the Arts, where I ended up, because I didn't know you could really, you know, there were conservatory schools, and I so I auditioned for several of them, and ended up going there. Um, Do you yeah. remember who else you auditioned for? And it was oh there, yeah, who was I your w- first choice? And I did well. I I I found out because it was near Carnegie Mellon had a program and I had a buddy of mine named Paul Johnson I've always wondered what happened to him because he was a great guy he converted to Islam and his name was Malik Ali Kamara uh, so if he happens to be listening <laughs> it's somewhere but anyway he drove with me from Cleveland to Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh I don't know if you've ever been there there's a lot of bridges a lot of bridges it was three rivers and we got pretty lost, and they were doing construction. So I got there about five minutes late, and this guy with an accent, he had a name tag and slapped it on my chest, and he went, you are late. And I turned to Paul, and I went, I don't want to go here. <laughs> oh, my and, God, uh, really? Yeah, and I just had a really bad... I remember telling this to my daughter. I said, if you have a goal, the world will either... You know, you'll have obstacles, but if you're not supposed to do something, it, there'll be a wall. And that's what I just felt. It immediately put a chip on my shoulder. They weren't terribly friendly. I was not in a good mood. Um, so I didn't get accepted. I'm I don't sure know. you were stressed as hell, too, about being late. Yeah, and just, uh, yeah. And, uh, they, and they were, they were just kind of, they were, my memory of it is they were kind of snooty. And then, I don't know. But then I also auditioned at a, where I think my first choice was, because when I heard about it, it's it's the, um, back then they had what they called the League of Professional Theater Training Programs. There was like Juilliard and Carnegie Mellon. And then there was uh, SUNY Purchase, State University of New York at Purchase. And there was just about maybe 40 minutes outside of Manhattan. And that intrigued me a lot because they had a lot of a, a real relationship with um, theater companies in New York as well. So it was a real, it seemed very tied to New York. So I went there uh, and auditioned in person. And the dean, I remember, I think he was British, he had a. He was very kind. He had an ascot, and I chose him. This is so sad. I think I was sixteen, seventeen, and I'd chosen the climactic scene from Christopher Marlowe's Doctor Faustus, which is like the sort of King Learian type of role, middle-aged man confronting Satan. And I was like, this little you know, seventeen-year-old talking like that, <laughs> right? And I did this audition, and uh, uh, he was this long pause, and he went. Well, I can tell you're very talented, but if we call you back, you cannot do that piece. <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, I appreciate your ambition, but you're like, you need to wait about 50 years to do that role. Right. And they were, it was interesting about them is they had callbacks where you had to go to New York City and they conducted them in an actual, like a, an audition studio. 
they wanted you to feel like what it would be like to have a real professional audition. And that was kind of cool. And uh, I didn't get in there, but they sent out a letter that was great where they quoted little stories of very successful actors and directors and writers, like with three or four stories who had been rejected early on in their life because they really wanted to encourage, like, you have a talent for this. You know, there isn't a place for you here, but don't let that deter you. I said it's very subjective. Which I really love kinda, that. Yeah, and, and, so, and, and I also auditioned for North Carolina School of the Arts, and that was very different. I felt it was still a very rigorous audition, um, you know, singing, and I had to do a poem and a monologue, but I felt like, I remember finishing that audition and thinking, I'm going to go here. Um, and uh, so that's, 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 that's where I went. Sometimes you know, right? Yeah, it was weird. It was just kind of like, I think I'm going to go here. So did you feel at home when you were there? Did we like uh, no, when I first got there, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> what made I mean, it horrible? Well, I guess because partly is, uh, it was, I did not realize the, the immense amount of work it would be. I, just, I had no... And before I went there, I was a pretty good student in high school, but I was not, and you know, I think I had one AP class accidentally. Um, in terms of, and I remember my, I got, I'd finished most of my credits by 11th grade, and so 12th grade, I was like, what do I have to take to just, you know, get a degree, or get a diploma? So I got there, and immediately, you had, you know, you'd have academic courses, like for two hours in the morning, like from eight to 10. But from then on, it was voice, gymnastics, combat, uh, singing, dialects, text analysis. Uh, you, did, you did no performing the first year. And, and you were basically, they ran on the model. It was primarily a British uh, model. The, the dean and the assistant dean were from England. They're great, but was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I was just thrown in. I remember, and I pulled my back out, I think, my second day in gymnastics. So I was miserable. And I didn't, I wore, you had to wear leotards, and I wore them wrong. And in the jazz dance class, you had jazz, the, the, the physical training, a lot of it was just, you'd have jazz for two or three times a week. And I was not, I, I danced, but I was not a dancer. And it was hard. I, was I believe you. You know, and when I played soccer, I never stretched, so I had you know hamstrings, and yeah. and so I was basically in the slow group. We actually named ourselves. We're the slow group at the back of the class because there'd be these two at the front, who were just natural dancers, and they would get all this attention, and we were like, and here we go. Right. And actually, the actor—I don't know if you know the actor Nick Searcy, who was on Justified. He played the 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 the, the what's his name's head. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He and we were also in the slow group together because uh, remember we had danced at Maynard Ferguson's. He did the Rocky theme. It's quite a good version of it. Um, yeah, that's burned. So yeah, so I was overwhelmed, and I actually may not have made it through. Except my roommate happened to be this guy named Kick James Bynum. He was uh, kind of a born again guy, but without being annoying about it. He was incredibly disciplined. He studied Kung Fu and everything. So I, something sparked in me. I got very competitive with him. Like I wanted to wake up earlier than him. He was very nice. It was nothing. But somehow trying to keep up with him helped get me through that. That's because, amazing. You're yeah. trying to outkick kick. Yeah, he, he, was, he was great. And it really was just... Because I think if I'd, had a, if I'd had a roommate that partied or something, I might have 
uh, gone that way. Well, they say, you know, you're the, the sum or the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah, it's good to was, have somebody like really, him around. Ama- yeah, because he was the most disciplined person. He came there disciplined, and I came there not disciplined at all. <laughs> I could have used a kick in my life yeah, back then. He was, he was, he was great. And, um, but they, they kind of broke you down, which I don't agree with, I think, because whenever I have taught uh, or directed... I go by the assumption that you you bring your ta- you have talent and maybe I can help you iron out some stuff or you know give you show you some techniques to get to it quicker, but they kind of you know we were so a lot I was only seventeen when I started there were some older uh, students there but a lot of us were just young, so we forgot we had talent so we started I remember thinking I can't talk I don't know how to stand I breathe wrong I can't dance. I pull my back out of gymnastics, I'm tone deaf, <laughs> and go. Yeah, and you're so, at this age where like, yeah, life's hard enough as yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, it's, so they kind of broke you down. But the trouble is, I don't remember them building us back up. So it was kind of, and luckily, I built myself back up. I don't know how. I had, again, I, surround, I had a couple of friends that were just, one guy was just very funny. Um, but some people got broken down and didn't. You know, and and then never acted again, and it does. Say, you know, there were forty of us that started, and only twelve of us graduated. And of those twelve, myself and only one other, maybe two others, are still acting or directing. So, and I don't know. That may be common with a lot of acting schools, but I don't remember. There wasn't a lot of the joy of it was not, and I think it's supposed to be fun, you know. And I think that was not. We discovered that on our own, but it wasn't encouraged. Like, you've got something. We're going to help you with it. It was more like, eh, you think you've got something? Well, we'll see. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that interesting. Was, yeah, but it's a sort of an old school. Uh, and in a way, it, it, the, I learned discipline there, which is and a work ethic. Um, but I think I could have had more joy. And I think a lot of the it was it was hard to see. Like, there was one actress who was really good. She just was naturally interesting and and she had an experience this one semester where it kind of broke her and you could see it you could just see this change in her and that's that's a shame yeah so this is a four-year program yeah yeah it was kind of the equivalent of a four-year graduate in terms of the level of uh the intensity of the training because you by your senior year it's different now there by your senior year, you became a company, and we literally toured. We um, became a re- you. We rehearsed three plays simultaneously, and then took them out on tour. We toured up the East Coast, all around North Carolina. Uh, we went to Tennessee, New Jersey. Oh, great experience. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was. We were our own crew as well. Sure. And, and so that was really kind of it, that was a really good experience. But again, we were being trained to be repertory actors, which was great. But then we got out, and they virtually were, you know, I think Oregon Shakespeare was still doing it. But most theaters were just jobbing individually out of New York. So Yeah, and I think Oregon still is. We've got yeah, a yeah. couple of actors in my theater company have left and are all cool. married couple that are out there oh, and just it. loving it. Yeah, and then the, yeah, you just have this resident company, which is, I think that's a, I wish that would come back. Yeah, it's like in a theater, the Alli- theater heaven. Bob Farley tried that here at the Alliance and for about a year or two, and then it didn't. Uh, I don't know if it didn't work, but then he was replaced. And so where did you go? Did you go to New York after that? 
Yeah, I went you? to New York with eighty dollars in my pocket. Now, did you yeah. think about L.A. at all? Was it or no, Chicago? Then, was, no, not at all. We because we were just we were not rats. we were not prepared at all. I mean, now my daughter went to the same school, and they are trained. The agents come down and casting directors, and so there's no showcase or anything. They did, they did. Well, that was the thing. It was one of the first years they had it for the league. So you went. And that was great. Uh, and I was—I almost didn't go back my senior year because they kicked my... That was another thing. The school, and a lot of schools, Juilliard did it. I think Carnegie Mellon may still do it. They would kick out students after their second year, which I think is horrifying. Just as a... a, a, a just the way it worked. Like, just as yeah. a matter of course, they yeah. were like, we're going to cut. and I think that's, you know... Uh, and I know people that are still scarred by that. Because here you've... you've and the second year there was the hardest year. People, some people almost had nervous breakdowns. Some I think actually did. It was just you were working like twenty, almost twenty hours because you were at that point you're doing plays and doing scenes in class and preparing songs and doing music theory. You're really, really overwhelmed. And then to be told, well, we're asking you to leave. Um, and they had kicked out my girlfriend who was a year behind me, and I was so mad I almost didn't go back because I had a job at the. Uh, Great Lakes then it was called the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival and I thought uh, I might go equity and then I could just you know but luckily I went back and I went back mainly because of those uh, scene the league auditions and I did three scenes and I actually got a very good I had like 40 interviews in, a, in, in two days that's great and I got well yeah, you'll see <laughs> it's, and I got an agent because I said I wanted I had worked with an actor in Cleveland who had, he and Al Pacino, he and Kevin Klein, I think Al Pacino had the same agent. And I went, I want that agent. I just set this goal. I sound like Tony Robbins. But I did, I set this goal. And I got that agent. They saw me at this thing and they signed me. But, and it was, it was, it was a mixed blessing because I, w- I went to New York and that summer I auditioned a fairly good amount. But I was auditioning for leads in movies and stuff which sounds great but I was competing against like Sean Penn and and so it on paper it felt kind of good but also I had no idea how like how to work with an agent to go in and say should we have a plan I just waited by the phone which is not a good thing and so since I didn't get any work in like the first six months they just kind of the phone stopped ringing and then after a year they called and said oh we we're not representing you Anymore. So I was back to to square one. Um, what were you doing for money in New York? Like, what were you? I did my first job was at Marloff Bookstores, which was a little bookstore in Sheridan Square, in New York. It's like West Fourth and Seventh Avenue. It's this little, uh, and I got fired for reading. Yeah, <laughs> shut was, up. Yeah, yeah, I was. Apparently, the owner would never came in, never, never came in, and he came in one night, and of course I was reading. So the next thing I knew, like, hey, I'm not on the schedule. But then I had, I was a bouncer. Uh, uh, I think I may have sent you a note about that. Right. I was a bouncer at at a folk club. Now, I used to, when I was younger, to impress women, I was like, yeah, I used to be a bouncer. But now there's no point. Uh, but yeah, but it actually was a tough job. But it was Folk City, which is where, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Bob Dylan started out. It's on West 3rd Street. Well, it used to be. It's not there anymore. Um uh, for thirty dollars a night, cash. Yeah, cash. And I was the doorman bouncer, and and I had to kick out a lot of people. But a lot of but the thing about a bouncer, which is hard, is that it's it's usually just drunks, and drunks have a chip on their shoulder because the minute you walk up to them, they know, 
And and usually, and the women would always throw their drinks on me. Just really, and they could tell. I could tell like These five are minutes folk, before. Folk club. Yeah, but it it was well. You'd get a mix of people because it was right near the subway. You'd get a lot of on weekends. You'd get a lot of people from New Jersey, uh, angry angry people from New Jersey, and you'd also have open like. And you had a lot. Of, you had a lot of you know. If there wasn't so much problem with like regular like on a weekend because. They had to pay more. There's more of a headliner kind of thing. But on open mic night um, or New Year's was always. I remember I had to kick out a guy. And actually, we had these two doors that were like uh, like a pinball. And I was trying to push him through the door, and I couldn't get him through. So I just went whack and sort of <laughs> I pinballed him out the door. Uh, I was almost knifed. Um, um, yeah. And I saw a lot of music, though. I got to hear a lot of. Are you a fan, or are you just are you done? No, well, I was done after that, but I remember like Suzanne Vega, Suzanne Vega, who became really big in the '90s. It was really funny because she was like this little waif that just sort of hung out and uh, would play on open mic night. Um, so I got to hear a lot of music, a lot of music, because um, I was there about a year, year and a half, almost two years. It was every night, virtually, like six days a week, I would work there. So during the day, you're trying to hustle for auditions. Or are you looking at backstage or just and doing being, plays? Or? Yeah, trying to. Uh, yeah, and just being miserable. I was pretty miserable. I did a lot of that. Uh, yeah, I just wasn't. New York was New York was a lot harder then, because it was the '80s. It was I lived there from '81 to '88, and it was uh, a couple of years ago. A movie came out called The Most Violent Year. I think it was uh, Oscar Isaac. And I didn't realize it was about 1981, which was the highest murder rate that New York had. It was just very, it was a, just, it was, it was a rough city. Not at all like it is now. Um, so yeah, I would audition and uh, think about life. <laughs> good, good money in that. Yeah, it was weird because I would get really good, like I'd, but I'd go work at, like work, my first real job was at the Guthrie. Um, well, actually, not my first. I, my first job was sort of a, an apprentice. Well, it was kind of second company up at the Berkshire Theater Festival. They used to do, they get like film stars to come do plays. It was kind of cool. They have Sigourney Weaver came up and did a Philip Berry play. And we would understudy them. And also we had our own company. And I had a director there. Oh, here's a story, Michael. <laughs> uh, this director, who will remain nameless, uh, we were doing Waiting for Lefty, and, which is a you know, quintessential American play, but he was kind of a theater snob. I remember he had a, like a reception for the, to welcome us in his apartment, and all his books were about theater. And I thought, how do you... Uh, yeah. Right. Just the, so I guess I was an anti-theater snob. But when Waiting for Lefty, he directed it as, as if it was a classic. And it is a classic, but it was, you know, you research it. Clifford Odets wrote it, literally wrote it, his typewriter on his toilet during a taxi driver's strike. He wrote it to, as kind of a rallying cry for these cab drivers that were on strike. Yeah, the, the end of the, the production in New York, people stormed yeah, the theater yeah. saying, fuck this, we're going to change yeah. this so thing. it wasn't like this classic, it was this It's not raw, a drawing room piece. <laughs> no, it's not a drawing room piece. And it was written raw. Yeah, exactly. They did. They, they, it, it became like this, uh, an event. So, and it was very realistic, and, you know, for then. And so, in it was quiet, and I had to, you know, and so the director, after, and it went very well, and actually, and this is not to toot my own horn, this is to counterbalance what the guy said later. <laughs> the uh, one night, uh, this older man, very older man, came up to me with his wife, 
and he said he had played the same role, and he said, oh, you, you played it much better, and it was really wonderful performance, and uh, it was William Gibson who wrote The Miracle Worker. Whoa. Yeah, and I was like, I didn't know that. <laughs> Someone said, that was William Gibson. So that was a nice validation. That's amazing. But, but, but then, so the director, <laughs> on opening night after, he goes, there's something I have to tell you, but I can't tell you to the end of the season. I was like, okay. Oh, and we kind of butted heads a lot. Because, you know, the guy was playing uh, Sid, who's a cab driver, so I was talking like that. You know, and he, he didn't speak like that. Then. Uh, so the end of the season, uh, we're, we're striking the set, you know, and getting ready. The next day, I'm going to drive back to my, my hovel in yeah. New York, which literally was a hovel. Um, and so he takes me aside, and he goes, I just want you to know, you do not have the tools to make a career in this business particularly the vocal the vocal uh, instrument I was like thanks <laughs> Mother. I was like what the fuck pardon my friend and it really I was like it was really devastating because even though I didn't respect the guy a whole lot that was you know he was a guy who'd been around and you know right and I was like why and first of all you know I the character I was playing talks like he's from he's from the Bronx and quiet and and so first it got under my skin but then I got him back in two ways <laughs> but the first job I got after that my first perfect where I got my equity card was at the Guthrie Theater and a big role an amazing Guthrie, theater the time, yeah amazing is one of the most vocally demanding theaters in the country at the time and one of the most best reputations and uh, so that felt very validating I was like I don't you know I was right like, I was like, Fuck. Tell these tell these assholes over here. And then I also uh, slept with his girlfriend. No, is that true? About, yeah, I did. Oh, oh my but god! But not that's... not not as a that uh, I really we I liked her, and they were not really seeing each other. They were they were estranged, shall we say? Oh and, my god, that is one. But the I best. didn't. Yeah, it wasn't like I went to do that just to get back at him. It was just a bonus. No, but it didn't. It didn't hurt things. Did either. not hurt things <laughs> at all. That's and amazing. So, so you never did like like little crappy little off off. Oh yeah, like, you oh, started yeah. the Guthrie. No, well, no, the, yeah, but then see, well then yeah, see, acting as you know, acting is it's 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 exhilarating. It's I think acting career is a little bit like having an abusive drunk parent because for you go for months at a time without any attention yeah. <laughs> and getting the crap beaten out of you and and all this. But then you know they come home Christmas Eve and and they hear so it's a little bit like that. So you you stick around for the uh, Christmas Eve parade. And we have our headline, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah, <laughs> well, and so so the Guthrie was like Christmas Eve, and then I came back and I was like, and it, it, they'd actually asked me to stay on to do another play, and I went back because my my girlfriend at the time, uh, this wonderful woman, Israeli woman, named Osnat Shurer, who is now. The head of uh, development for uh, Disney, Disney Pixar. Oh, she wow. actually produced uh, um, uh, uh, Moana. Really, really talented. She's had an incredible. She was actually my first wife. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, well, I married her because she needed her citizenship. But because we were like seeing each other, and I thought, well, why she, she was going to pay someone to get a green card? And I'm, well, I'll marry you because we're in love. This is like 1982. Not realizing I wasn't an American citizenship, so it wasn't a very clear path. She did get it. I was about to say, like, um, <laughs> but anyway, so she, well, how did that come up? Oh, I, I went back because she had been uh, like robbed and and it was having a really rough time back in New York. So I, I came back, but everyone had said, "Wow, you've only been in New York two years, and you worked at the Guthrie. Wait till you get back to New York. It's a great feather in your cap." 
Well, the agent who had signed, this was a different, but, but since, the, since I had that big agent that dumped me, I got another agent who had actually come to those uh, uh, original New York auditions, a really great guy named Paul Decker. But while I was in Minneapolis, he got a job for NBC casting daytime casting in Los Angeles, and I was not a soap actor. Uh, not not by choice. I just didn't look like a soap actor. Um, yeah. So, so I didn't realize, I thought the whole agency was fond of me, and they'd be really glad that when I got back, oh, this is, uh, yeah, this is the abusive dad, drunk dad comes home. The apparent, I found out later that the the woman in the office was was a was a kind of a, a a strident lesbian, and nothing against being a lesbian, but she she was she was she did not like the male actors, and she and uh, so, which is odd. Um, <laughs> some of my best friends are lesbians and they seem to like it. but she was just and she was an angry woman and I remember I called her and I said you know because I wasn't getting any auditions and I said you know I thought you know having been a, she goes you just got to work a lot of our clients haven't worked so I was like I, 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 I thought this would help you you have this to and so I made a, a an appointment with the owner of the agency this sort of talk over things uh, oh god and he and he wasn't senile. It's, he's going to sound senile, but what and what he told me. But here I am. I was twenty three, twenty four, just in twenty four, thinking, you know, things should be going well now. And he said, "Steve, I've got some advice for you." And I was like, "All right, here we go." He goes, "If I were you, I would go work in the Texas oil fields for a few years." Yeah, that's what my face did. What your face <laughs> just did, and I shook my. I was like, "What? What? what, what, what? Because I was thinking, you should maybe, let's try to get you in an off-Broadway, but, you know, something, right, a real right, practical right. career. But he goes, yeah. Because he said, because right now you're uncastable. And I was like, I felt a little bit like Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie. I was like, w- I just, but I just worked a month and a half ago at the best theater in the country. He goes, yeah, because you're not a young dad. You're not a young husband. You're just, you're just in this, in this, in this no man's land. And I was like, but I just, and I could see that, Nothing I say will... He was never going to see you No, see you differently. If, if his recommendation was I should go work in the Texas oil fields, <laughs> and to be that specific, it wasn't like you should take some time... And, and work maybe, on your vocal training while you're there. Yes, yes, because you're, you're, you don't have a... And so I just left. And I remember, I also, I remember one time, you know, they have those uh, equity open calls, which no one gets, very rarely anyone gets cast. Right. And they were doing, I think it was Awake and Sing, and I went to one, and you go there at six o'clock in the morning, get on a list, sign up, and I auditioned, and it went. Uh, they said, "Wow, we did. Are you new to New York?" And I was like, "No." And they said, um, "We definitely want to bring you into callbacks. Um, tell your agent." Um, da, 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 da. And so I was like, I was so excited, and it was pouring rain. And I remember, and I didn't have, um, so I didn't have subway fare, but I was so happy, and I walked through the pouring rain to my agents. And I walked in and I said, yes, they, wanna, they want me to make sure you... And they went, all right. And nothing ever came of it. And that's when I started thinking, yeah. So, yeah, so I, going back to your question 800 an hour ago. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I did do off, yeah, off, off, off Broadway stuff. I did a thing called Wanda and Her Dog way over on like 11th Avenue. Long, you know, you remember walking back then. It was like a 25-minute walk almost from Times Square to get down there. And it was a little storefront. 
and and I was t- it was back when as an I'd lost my confidence as an actor. This was about in 1984, um, and and a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, was directing it. I really liked him, and I had a crush on the girl playing Wanda. I wasn't the dog. I was her. Fr- it was back when I thought I've got to make interesting choices. Like, don't trust the script. You bring something not related to the script. To I want to stand out. Yeah, I think I should make this instead of. Now, mind you, the script wasn't that great, so maybe. So I made the guy. He was this physicist, but dressed in leather and stuff. He was kind of a uh, rock and like, roll physicist. Yeah, but then I gave him like this really thick New York accent. It's probably really terrible. It was not a good play. It was about a talking dog. Well, let's 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 talk just a little bit about losing your confidence as an actor. Like, yeah. How, what, why do you think that happened, I and what did you do to to keep going? I think part of it was you know like getting that like from the eight like a little bit too is that thing of you know that old fraud thing like I'd worked at the Guthrie, but I you know the things like that remark. It's weird how negative remarks will really stick with you, um, and and I don't know if it's it's it maybe more unique to to folks in the arts where maybe we're not the most well-rounded or whatever. You know, people who go into the arts, I don't want to generalize, but there's, there's maybe there's, something missing there's, from yeah, us. There's, there's a, a whole, reason why we're yeah, doing there's this. There's a gap in you our, know? our humanity. And it's not noble. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's probably... And, so, and I think part of it is those, when you're not working, then the, it's like the negative voices tend to overpower, and you think, and I guess there's so much in, you think it's you did something wrong. And, and then you then you cross into the line of well I didn't just do something wrong, I'm wrong. And then I'm, and uh, and I think that and also New York tended to, I isolated myself, which I think New York tends to. It's such a, it's an intense city, and I wasn't getting I wasn't taking classes, which I probably should have to get out there. Um, I just you know I, have a community. Yeah, I did not have a community, and uh, so I think so you start eating your own brain. And then you start doubting your your talent, and I th- and I think again I had I'd lost the joy of it, um, um, and uh, yeah, so you just start questioning yourself. Did you have a backup plan other than the Texas no, oil fields? No, it's, it's, <laughs> no, that's it, and that's where you feel trapped because you go, I don't know, there's nothing else I want to do. Um, so you are kind of, you know, and then part of it too is you get so. I remember. Uh, then it's an awful feeling when you feel af- like I would get an audition, and instead of getting excited, you'd be afraid. I remember I had an audition for some Shakespeare. I think it was a Riverside Shakespeare Company. I went in and I got about halfway through a monologue, and it was just kind of it was going going down, losing altitude quickly. And I went, "Can I start again?" And they were very nice. So, oh yes, please. And I did it worse. Okay. I always tell actors, you, "You can start again, but don't do it worse." Um, yeah, and I just had I'd kind of lost my uh, juju, and um, you still married at this time? Yeah, but we weren't li- we never lived with each other, and at that point, and then she she went off traveling. She studied with this great meditation teacher, and she was, she was traveling all over the world. Um, so I was really at that point. Where was I living? Uh, I think I was. I may have been in Manhattan, but we lived on the north corner of Central Park. Which is made it was Harlem then it was pretty much an all black neighborhood we were like but we did carpentry so people were nice to us um, and it wasn't now it's like prime real estate then it was just families where did and, you learn carpentry 
I, I, I had to, one of the other jobs, one of the eight million jobs I had in New York, I was a limo driver, I was a messenger at the World Trade Center, uh, I installed custom window treatments. But a, a buddy of mine who was a roommate was a master carpenter, and then he worked for a guy who did renovations in the Lower East Side, and I started working with them, then I learned, I became a carpenter. Do you still have those skills? Yeah, I haven't used them in a while. I used to do, when I first came to Atlanta, one of the side jobs I did was renovations and stuff back in our late 80s, early 90s. Um, so I know my way around. But I did learn, you learn a work ethic, too. And, and one of the things about it, as in a lot of actors, if you, like I recently worked on a film with two young actors. It was a, the film with Al Pacino. And two of the young actors, they had come, they'd start working right away. And they hadn't gotten the humility. They weren't jerks or, you know, but you could tell the difference of an actor who has paid their dues versus someone who had and dues I mean mainly you just you get humiliated to survive the humiliation right. but again I also did you know I did apprenticeships at theaters where you learn crew and you learn you work for $15 a week travel stipend or gas money and you do learn a, a, a humility about the profession whereas because you know, these, these two were like sitting there Al Pacino sitting two seats away from them and they're sitting there on their phones and it's like you have you're going to be working here Talk to the man, right? Know? And I mean, when I did, I did a film in New York, and I've been working on. I've been there about a week. And one of the teamsters got me anything. He was from Brooklyn, and we were doing a scene where I drive up in this cab, a passenger in this cab, and we pull it up and I get out. So each time the teamster had to you know back the car up, and this is guy Anthony. And after like one of the takes, he turned back and he goes, "Steve, uh, you've paid your dues, haven't you?" And I went, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I, I could tell. <laughs> That's a great compliment. And it's well, it's and you and you see like people I've worked with, and not the name drop, but some actors like you know, like like a Pacino or uh, Kevin Costner, they treat their crew and fellow actors, everyone as a peer, and and you can tell the difference of people who came up through the ranks. They don't have an overblown sense of themselves. They know that yeah, we're all just a piece of this. We are, and that's, and you can immediately tell who has that. And who doesn't? Well, I mean, the industry has changed so much. I mean, we talked yeah. about one, like, you know, the idea of, like, doing theater and rep no longer exists. Yeah. The fact that your agent, when you were in your young 20s, yeah. which right now is, like, the most yeah. marketable thing to have yeah. and be the age to be, yeah. and the fact that he was like, I don't know what to do with you. Yeah. I mean, that says a lot about how different well, things and I, are. And, right and, and I, I'm a big believer, and I don't know if this is just rationalizing for those times that dad comes home drunk, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> Well, I thought but Dad coming drunk was a good time. Yes. No, no, that's... <laughs> I thought that was the good well, part of the analogy, because he's happy with you. And like, well, uh, no, 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 that's... No, yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe he's drunk all the time. But, <laughs> Sorry. We, we won't ahead. talk about that. Um, the, uh, but also, I do believe the universe will, will stop you. You know, and I think... Uh, because, like, how... When I've looked at certain successes or certain big changes in my life and in a lot of people's lives... There were some weird turns that, you know, and it's, so I try to remind myself if I am trying to achieve something or try to do something and it just isn't working, to try to stand back for a moment and go, what, okay, what am I supposed to see? Not to sound like Oprah, but am I missing something? Because if you just keep banging against the wall that won't open, you may not, that old thing of, you may look over here, there's another door that's cracked. And like I, as I told you earlier, what I said to my daughter, and I think that was an example of, you're not going to go out and do a bunch of regional theater. You know, I guess that was a way of... Because for a while you go, why me? Why did my agent who loved me go to Los Angeles? And, 
it just in, instead of I, I remember just being hurt by that and didn't think well what other opportunities which instead of going oh this is a good sign and I think after you get pummeled enough in this business you start going you can either just sit on the side of the road and uh, cry and bleed bleed out <laughs> uh, or you can go well before I bleed out what am I supposed to see um, so how do you know like if you're, you're you know you're meeting this like kind of metaphorical wall and yeah. like, how do you know when to you have persistence and how do you know when to say okay let's find another I think route. it's the questions you ask like, what am I I mean I remember like about seven years ago it was more of a personal thing but a, a personal bad thing had happened and metaphorically speaking, I, I got hit by a car, or maybe I think I, I hit myself with my own car. And I was mainly, uh, I'm going to get trapped in my metaphor, but I was just basically whining to the world, or, you know, to the heavens about it. And then I went, well, I got hit by a car for whatever reason. What am I supposed to see? So I think I was asking that question. So I think it's about what am I supposed to see instead of going, if you ask, why didn't I get this job or why didn't I get this agent? Your mind will come back with, well, because you're not talented, or because so-and-so is better, or because it is, again, sounding like, and I forget where I read it, but it is, it's, it is important, the questions you ask yourself. It's like, what can I learn from this? What else should I see? What's great about this? Um, and I remember I actually had to sort of practice that for a while in my life, where it's like, well, what's another way? What, what is a better question to ask? I really sound like a motivational speaker, but well, I really no, do well, think. I mean, I think it's I, a, I really, really believe that, because even in the in, in personal, I remember you know having, you know, family illnesses or tragedies. Not that you don't feel the pain, and it isn't awful, but you try to keep your eyes open because that's life too. You go what, and otherwise, if you then you're just fighting it, and you're not really experiencing that either. You're just going, hey, this is not happening. And you maybe need, I think you need to do that for a little bit because sometimes life is, is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, but then otherwise you can see the weird blessings and the weird cool stuff that's in there. And even in the pain can be, you are still alive in that. And so that can, I think that's helpful in life. As well. I've found that. And again, maybe it's one big rationalization to survive life and your career. Uh, but I don't think so because I, I I read a lot. No, and I think it but it makes sense. And I think that's a really yeah. actually helpful tactic it keeps for you people who are forward. You know, when yeah. shit goes wrong. Which yeah. it does and yeah, will. It does. It will always. And it's, and it's kind of supposed to. I mean that's what you think of basic story structure is you try something and something gets in your way and you overcome it. And writers didn't invent story structure. They just looked at life and went, That's how life works. Right. And and that's how we get satisfaction of doing something hard and overcoming it. And hopefully it doesn't destroy you and leave you bleeding in a, in a ditch. I want to get, because uh, you are a writer, I want to talk about that in yeah. a little bit. But so what? where did you get to Atlanta? Like, how did that happen? Purely by really, this is one of those universe weird things uh, and just coincidence or whatever. I, uh, I was living in New York. My folks were living in uh, Jasper, Georgia. And I was just coming to visit for like five days from New York, just for a summer visit. And a friend of mine who I had done, remember that company where the guy told me I didn't have the tools to be an actor? The Berkshire? Uh, yeah, Berkshire Theater Festival. I'd worked in that company. It was a woman named uh, Stephanie Kalos, who's now a very successful novelist. Really great, great friend. And we hadn't seen each other. This was 87. So we hadn't seen each other in about five years. She was doing a play at the Georgia Shakespeare Festival. And she said, why don't you come? She was doing uh, Much Ado About Nothing. She goes, why don't you come visit and come see the play? And so I did a day trip. I drove down to Atlanta, 
but not knowing where I was going, I actually got there early. So she, she at her apartment, she wasn't ready. So I just had to wait in her living room while she got ready. And there was a script, and I had every intention of just going back to New York. That's what I was, you know, was just visiting. But there was a script uh, for a wrinkle in time. It was for the alliance was doing it and having auditions. And I would just start reading it, and it was hilarious and funny and interesting. And I said, "What's this?" When she came in, she goes, "Oh." That's uh, we're doing this. I'm auditioning for it tomorrow. She said you should crash the audition, and I was like, I can't, I'm going back to New York. She goes, crash it because there were two. There's a character, Calvin, uh, was just really clever and funny, and so I crashed the audition. I went in and you know, and I ended up getting the part. Uh, and so I went back to New York and came down, and it was it was a lot. It was back when the Alliance. You'd do the play in uh, at the Alliance, you know a couple weeks and then you'd go on tour all around Georgia we went up to Virginia so it was a, the longest I'd been out of New York for like three months that was the fall of 87 and I sort of got weaned away from New York and ended up staying here and going back to that community there was a community here there, the actors were so supportive whereas in New York and I don't know if it came from being at a conservatory where you just didn't want to be around other actors I don't know or if New York just wasn't conducive to that. Because I remember reading about James Dean and those guys, they all hung out together, and I never found that in New York. Whereas Atlanta, you know, the people were hanging out at manuals, and they weren't being jerks. It wasn't like a bunch of actor boneheads. They were like interesting, cool people. And they were so supportive. They were like, you know, do you need an agent? I was like, I'm only here for three months. They go, that doesn't matter. I'll get you an agent. So that they hooked me up with an agent. Or they say, you know, there's an audition at this at theater in the square or at the theatrical outfit. People who were so supportive of each other, um, that's one of the things that, that drew me here. So I sort of came back and never, then a year later I met my, a woman who I, was, I married and had a child with. So I just sort of got weaned away. And, and that was 31, 30 years ago. So. Did, you, uh, did you miss it? It doesn't sound like you would have. <laughs> no, I didn't. because I, And I was, doing, I was doing some regional theater, um, but... Yeah, I didn't, and I. It was it was tough because you also you had the thing of I've got to be in New York or LA to make it, and and if you're serious about acting, and I had to sort of over. I felt like there was a part of me that felt like I was giving up by leaving New York, but um, and I, and it wasn't like I worked a lot when I did that play at the Alliance, but I came back and I worked at Camille's restaurant on North Highland for about a year or two, off and on. Didn't I did some industrial stuff? I started doing some plays. I hadn't, I, I really hadn't found, even though I enjoyed doing the Alliance play, I had uh, still not found my love of acting again. And it wasn't until eight, in 1989 I took a class with Rebecca Wackler. And she had formed, she and Larry Larson and Eddie Levi Lee had formed a company called the Southern Theater Conspiracy which had sort of national renown. They'd had a play called Tent Meeting that was at Actors Theater of Louisville and then got went to New York off-Broadway. Got panned, unfortunately, so they didn't... But when I was in New York, I actually had auditioned as an understudy because they were expecting that show to be a hit. But all that to say, she taught a scene study class that I took, and that became like a little acting company because I, every, I was doing one different scene every week and it rekindled the joy of it right. and the passion of it and uh, fun and she would give me all sorts of roles and it, it was it totally re and she taught me a lot about just the joy of it of like yeah this would be fun and exciting and difficult and 
Um, and that rekindled it. And then that's when I started doing TV and film. And, but that was back too when we had to drive to Wilmington because there wasn't a ton of film. There was a lot of TV movies, and there was All Fly Away was here in the heat of the night. But uh, so, how old are you at this point when you're back? You're back in Atlanta now. I mean, not back in Atlanta. You're in moved, Atlanta. When I moved to New York. Was I was like I moved, came back down here. Was like twenty eight, twenty nine, and then and I didn't start making a living like. I think it was my only job till about 93 or so, 92. Tell me about the decision to be able to say, all right, I'm going to quit my day job and I'm just yeah, going to do this. Yeah, I, I remember I, was, I went from being a waiter at Camille's Italian restaurant to uh, being a bartender. And it was like they call the golden handcuffs. You get a lot of cash every night. Um, but, uh, but I was really unhappy because I wasn't acting. Uh, and even though I... And, I decided it was near Christmas, and I decided I have to leave. But I didn't have a plan. <laughs> this was, it was right around, I think it may have been around 90. It was around the Gulf War, because I remember, wasn't the Gulf, first Gulf War? was yeah, around like fall of 90 or Because I remember 91. I just quit. I just put in my notice without a backup plan. I didn't have savings or anything. That's all I wasn't thinking. Um, uh, and uh, so I ended up having, and also my wife at the time was, uh, not that I've had a string of wives, but my wife, uh, she was going to graduate school, and I wanted her to be able to do it in two years. So I said, I'll just work. And so I remember doing three different jobs. But this is when I started taking the acting class, I guess. Well, a little bit, about a year before that. So I was working at a warehouse, I was doing the carpentry, and I was also doing a little of the bartending. Um, but then I just sort of, somehow I started getting, I, I taught a little bit, but then I just started getting work, and it just somehow came together. And uh, all of a sudden I realized I was making my living, at, at the time, acting and teaching acting. Um, and then, yeah, but then now that's all my income for some time now, is, which is weird, that it's just being an actor. And then for a while, like I said, I was a, for about four years I was a writer, because uh, the acting had slowed down. But that too was just pure coincidence. It wasn't like, oh, now I'm going to write and make a living acting. I mean, make a living writing. I didn't do that. Let's, uh, talk, about, let's talk about teaching for a minute, and yeah. then I want to talk about writing. Uh, did you enjoy teaching? Yeah, I didn't. That, that same woman, Rebecca Wackler, she, I think I'd taken her course, her classes about two years, and then she needed a substitute because she, she, she was a working actor. And I never thought I wanted to teach or direct. And I fell into both by accident. I, um, so I substituted, and I just, like, I really enjoyed it. I really, really... And I don't know, part of it... I don't, I don't think I was very good at first, because I think I was... The way I would t teach would be like, well, what would I do? And not realizing that everyone has a different approach. But I did go on the premise that, you know, you're talented at this. And, and trying to help people find the fun in it and the joy in it, because I think that is a huge motivator. And it's, it is basically playing pretend, and you know, maybe a sophisticated, semi-sophisticated form of that. But I just really enjoyed it. And then I, she asked me to teach a class, and I was teaching about four classes. And she moved to L.A., and she, all, there was all these actors that didn't have, so I, I taught those classes for a while. And was this scene study classes? Or you take yeah, somebody through a program? Yeah, purely scene study. On camera? Just, just or, ongoing, or on camera scene study. I'd use, I'd use uh, scenes from plays as well as film and TV. 
Um, but yeah, just on camera scene study. I got to um, go back and ask you something that yeah. I didn't ask because other act, the actor nerds that are listening yeah. to this are going to be like, so at North Carolina School of the Arts, what what method of acting or they training ha- were, were you receiving? Yeah, they did not. It was in term the the in terms of the technical stuff was mainly British. There was a what's her name? Kay Roddenberry? No, that's not right. But in terms of acting, there was no style, and I don't. I didn't learn. Uh, I think it was closer to Stella Adler, maybe. Uh, the best acting teacher I had there was a woman named Chidam Onat, who's kind of the Meryl Streep of Turkey. She's this director and actress from Turkey. It was really wonderful, because all about taking actions. What actions do you take to get what you want? Um, it was just really sort of Gaston Slavsky and Stella Adler. But there was not, we didn't get, there was no specific technique. And the, the most I learned were from guest directors coming in from New York and stuff. It was more practical because they these were successful directors, so they had a way of working, which was usually what's the story, you know, not. But we, yeah, we did. That's a, that's an interesting question because we didn't, we weren't taught Meisner or, it was more, yeah, we didn't really get. And so when you started teaching, what were you incorporating into your? I was incorporating, and it and it it evolved over the years because I probably taught off and on for about. I think my daughter uh, about ten years, maybe maybe eleven or twelve years. Um, it would evolve as my career evolved as an actor, based on. But I really sort of taught what had worked in you know the best directors I'd worked with, best actors I'd worked with. I tried to model what they did because it's like well, it worked for them consistently, and so um, you know again about what are you doing. And do that. Um, and the more and more I worked, and then when I became a, more of a writer, I realized so much of it is in just the words on the page. They give you so much of what you need. And then for a while, I think I, I leaned too much in that. Because you know, David Mamet has a sort of school of acting that the writer's is kind of God. And the writer's not God. There's a, there's a synergy between the writer, director, and the actor. But I do think 90%, if you just do what's written on the page... You'll be pretty fine, and I'm, I'm amazed at how many actors. You know, if it writes, if there's a pause, take the pause. The writer did six drafts to come up with that pause, and if you don't use the pause, make it a real like you've worked it out. Like you know what, it's actually better not to take the pause. But I see a lot of actors because I remember watching a lot of auditions and stuff, and um, in the years of Tyler Perry seeing actors audition, it's like why didn't you? I stayed up till three writing the draft of that script, and you just paraphrase it, or and if it you know the the difference of, I mean, the, the the words are a score to follow. You may be able to enhance it a little bit, but so many actors don't even look at the punctuation, and that's frustrating because it's like, and I, and as an actor, I remember doing a, I used to do a lot of work at Emory at their Brave New Works. We have new plays, and sometimes they'd also do like a, we did a, some a George Bernard Shaw and working on Shaw is a huge education because there'd be certain lines where if you took a breath on that sentence, it wouldn't make sense. So you had to just say it in one breath and then it would make logical, emotional sense. So you learn the power of just doing as, as is written. Um, so, yeah. What, do you, is, what other mistakes do you see younger actors making? Or did you uh, see back then? We, yeah, we were kind I, of still, dealing no, with I the more. still see it. They think I've got to make a choice. You know, I got to make an interesting choice. And I was like, well, first, first, before you make that interesting choice, do what the writer, because again, the writer put a lot of thought into it. 
and and a lot and he or she has done five six seven ten drafts of this try that first and do that for because that's hard enough just to do that um and 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 i used to get people made fun of me for saying this that you are enough you like you don't have to you saying these lines if you come up and you have a line that says i'm gonna cut your fucking head off that's interesting you don't have to go i'm gonna cut your fucking head off with a twitch in your eye because also what I found, too, is the more you follow the script and reread it and reread it and reread it, that's another thing I see that actors don't do it enough. Like, they'll just miss stuff. But the more you read it, then it feeds that creative, cool, neat part of you where an interesting original choice that will improve a moment. Um, instead of just going, well, I think he should talk like this. Um, you know, I see actors putting on accents. It's like, where did you... And again, I've made those... Like I told you, I did that Bronx accent with the guy. It's like, it wasn't written with a Bronx accent. And it wasn't a real, like, well, the rhythms of this sound kind of Bronxian. Right. Or like, I think I'm not interesting enough unless I put an accent. So I think a lot of actors... A lot of actors just don't put in enough time. And isn't like in any job, you got to... If you're a piano player, guitar player, carpenter, accountant, CPA... If you put in the time, quality will follow. Well, not always. But I think a lot of actors don't put in that time. And they right. do that. They just impose a choice that doesn't belong there. It's like... Are, are you still are you still auditioning for a lot of roles? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, once, you know, it's now and again you get offered something. But still, you, I read for you know, 95% of the work I do. Can we talk about your process? Sure. All right, let's say you have a um, you've got a three page mm-hmm. side for you know um, you know uh, I don't know it doesn't matter but yeah, pick yeah. A, pick any film that you want um, and the agent sends you your sides mm-hmm. will you walk me through your process yeah first and, and part of it is is it a role I want to do you know and it's not that I like I'm sitting on a pile of money and this you know but part of it is do, do is this something I, is that's interesting to me. Because, you know, I also trust the universe that if I don't do this, hopefully something else will come along. It does not. And so is, when you're interesting, is that just uh, the role? Is it also who you're working with? Is yeah, it's like- part of it. Because sometimes I guess it's a role that is, it's sort of like, it's, it's some detective, you know, but it's with a really cool director, you know. Um, then it might be like Clint Eastwood. I just did a tiny, tiny, tiny role in, what was it, the 15, 17 to Paris. It was like an eye doctor. I had five lines maybe, tops. But it was Clint Eastwood, and I was like, "I'll do that." Hell yeah! Because it's, I just wanted, it, I you know, I don't, I wanted that experience. Um, and usually, it's like, uh, you, sometimes it's if it's a kind of role I've played before, um, then it just seems like why. I mean, I'm 58, and it's like, uh, do I really want to do something I've done before? Um, but. Uh, if it seems, you know, if it's just sort of like a, I'd like to, or if it scares you, sometimes it's the, the Prince Charles thing was was more like they're just not going to cast me because I'm not British and I don't look like him. And then I, I did, I googled a picture and went, well, we have the same color hair, and that's what sort of went, well, okay. But so I say it's a role I like, and, and, and that sounds pickier because sometimes it's like, well, I need to pay uh, the rent. <laughs> but I, I just read the script several times. I try to just just read it for what's happening just to get the story and it's hard because that part of you is like 
what cool stuff do I get to do? So you read it with that filter. With an ex- um, yeah, there's a there's a, a love, there's a joy, a bubble of excitement. Yeah, at least. and a, and a sort of and then there's also oh shit, there's a big monologue on the second page. That means I'm not going to get to watch the Americans tonight because I got to learn line. <laughs> um, so there's that too, just the lazy part of your brain. Um, and then you, I I try to. Uh, it's interesting. I guess a lot of this is now unconscious. So I'm trying to think, but I try to connect. Where do I connect? Where I go? How's that? Not to impose my personality on the role, be but I was like, where do I connect? Where does that resonate? I go, okay, I get, I get this guy, and you try to get that hook in. Otherwise, it becomes a you'll comment on it. You'll That's play an your, emotional hook. Yeah, or like is that where, a, where I can identify, where I can empathize. Some okay. it might be just a line or two where it's connecting to a fear. The, the an interesting thing about acting is you're always playing people who are in trouble usually. So you do have to, and not, it's not, I'm not whining about it, but you do have to tap into shame, past shame, past failure, past frustration, past fear, because a lot of people are taking action out of fear. You know, they don't write scripts about people who are comfortable. Well, they do, but we don't yeah, go those see are, those. Those are boring. So you have to sort of tap into that. Um, so you just, I will read to go, where, do, where, where can I tap into that? Um, and then I break it down into literally chunks, like where just technically, where that where's that first action he's taking? Here he's trying to get her attention, and uh, and it's and it's not scientific. It's more like it really is just chunks. And this is I kind of teach this too, because it also serves another purpose of that. I'll learn a chunk at a time of dialogue, and it's easier to match it with uh, an intent or an action. Because the one you, you know, like I'm trying to get her attention. So everything I'm saying here is really trying to get her attention. And then that second chunk is okay. Now I've got to explain what I need her to do. So you're pairing the words to the action in that first in that first beat yeah. immediately. Yeah, and yeah. and it helps learning it. Um, and then again, there I remember reading Stanislavski in in his you know he has those three wonderful books and in creating a role, which is more a real like a real handbook. He goes through I think I think it's Othello. He says, once in a while, you will read a role that is just, you just instinctively, I know this person, I got it, and it's, the lines will come in this. And he goes, it's very funny, because he goes, well, unfortunately, that hardly ever happens. <laughs> and then he goes, and if that does happen, then throw any technique, techni- whatever, out the window, just follow your gut. But that doesn't happen that often. And so that thing of, by feeling out where you hook in and breaking it down into those chunks, uh, it keeps my left brain busy, and it, I, I, it, going back to a little carpentry metaphor, it creates those two by four, the foundation where you can, you know, you want to do all the fancy stuff, the painting and all that, but you got to get that foundation down there. Are you, like, on, are you on your feet? Are you in a chair? Like, where, where um, are you working on this? Sometimes I'm sitting on my bed, sometimes on a couch. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm usually very relaxed. I'm usually in a in a comfy place, but then maybe I do that a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm generally I find I'm myself generally, generally on my couch. Just lying down <laughs> Anyways, the, um, but I do. I, I'm usually in in my bedroom, lying in a in a pretty very comfortable thing. I think that is. I'm not distracted. I don't tend to. I won't be. You know, I don't have the TV on. I don't. I, I will not have other things going on. I won't. So I can just really read it. Because um, those are some of your first impressions. Some of your first impressions will be wrong, but a lot of your first impressions are uh, 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 are 
are sound and, and they so you want you want that to be a pretty pure you know calm i, I think uh um and so by setting up that stuff and then it's 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 like uh, i've compared this to getting into water in a wet bathing suit it's like it's kind of you know you're like you're uncomfortable but it's slowly the more you work because at first your work is very conscious and you're trying to make the words make sense in your mouth but slowly the more conscious work you do it the more you read it um and i will this is a thing there's an acting coach in atlanta shannon eubanks who she talks about this when i start saying the words out loud i'll pick a geographical place in the room a book on a bookshelf a vase or something where I can direct the lines. And I will record on my iPhone. Uh, I know there are actually apps that do this, so you can, and that's probably easier than what I do. I just use the, whatever you call, memo thing. And I will whisper my lines, but say the other person's lines very neutrally, but at, at approximately the timing that it would be. So I can just get used to hearing them, so it's not all in my head. Right. And that works for me in terms, especially when I get to just drilling the lines, because then I can, once I know the lines and the intents, I can play that while I'm doing laundry, while I'm in the car. I can get used to saying those lines under different circumstances. So, like, I'll be in the car practicing the dialogue as if it's a phone call, because I'm not practicing how to do it. I'm practicing what's that guy trying to do. Does that make it sense? It does make sense, yes. And so you don't get set into a way of doing it. You know, I think a lot of us, my daughter was very good at catching me. I remember one time I was reading, uh, for, I was about to audition for a role, and I asked her to, to read it with me, and she's about maybe 13, 14, and she goes, Dad, you're using your actor voice. Oh, and man, that's, not me, that's but awesome. She, it's that, you know, that little sound that's like it's not quite present it's acting your idea of the character. Right. And it was great advice because I was like, you know, you're right. Um, and I, actually, recently, there was a Kathy Reinking, uh, the She's a new casting director in town. I auditioned, and she said sort of the same thing. She said, I need more you. She said, do it again. I need more you. Put your, whoops, uh, uh, put your soul into it more. Because I think that is a, an ongoing thing with a lot of actors where is just be present. Be really you, your soul coming through the character's words. Um, so that's... that's, uh, And then going back to technique about drilling them, once you know that, uh, to try to just be there. And now so much of it is self-taping. Well, what, let's uh, talk about that. Yeah. Was that an adjustment for you? Because it's, you it, have a career before Atlanta became... Yeah, you know, yeah, end. and I, it, it's one thing that's not good about self-taping is you don't have that adrenaline, and because that adrenaline and that you want to, you know, if you go in to read in person with someone, you're not going to get five, six. I've done seventeen takes of something when it's something really technical, or my brain just isn't working. Um, so the since the stakes aren't as high in the actual audition process, I mean, the stakes of the job may be high, but you can do a lot of takes, and I think. Without that adrenaline, your focus isn't. You have to, to, self-motivate that. So, and the thing about going in a room, it's your nerves are a little higher, so you're you're on your game. Well, you have to be. Um, so that's the, that is the main difference, which I miss that. Plus the communal, plus getting adjustments from a director. Um, right, you, you prove know. you can take direction. Yeah, and, and sometimes a, a role. I remember uh, what was the the film um, uh, Jane Mansfield's Car. I went to audition, and Billy Bob Thornton was directing, and he was there, and I I did the reading of the role, and he goes, 
uh, <laughs> he said that the characters kind of changed. He goes, and he said, it's nothing that you did, but I, my idea of the characters changed, so could you try it this way? And if that had been a self-tape audition, I probably wouldn't have gotten it because I, w I would have been doing it in a way that the character really wasn't going to be portrayed that way. And a lot of, yeah, like you said, being able to take direction or they just see, you know, a lot of it is, do I want to work, spend 16 hours a day, you know, for a while with this person? So I think that, uh, but at the same time, because of the, the um, bringing in self-taping, there's a higher volume. You know, a casting director doesn't have to rent out a room so they can be working on three or four or five projects, which isn't easy for them, but it is, the volume of work is more. Do you self-tape at home or do you go to yeah, the, do yeah. you a place? And I don't have a very fancy, we joke that it's, it's I, I have a nice lighting setup. I don't have a, it's not sophisticated. We don't have a room. I wish we did that was just designated as that. Literally, we have to, I have to move the television off the wall, hang the backdrop. It used to be, up until about two years ago, my lighting system was bringing in a lamp, taking the lampshade off. And, but I got a lot of work, so I was like, well... I'd Why am I going to mess working. with this? Yeah. I actually got the job, and when I did, I did Wizard of Lies uh, with Barry Levinson, and I happened to be down in Florida at a house, and the only light, the walls were like a, I forget what color they were, but with the sun coming in, and the only lamp we had, I looked pink. And there was nothing I could do to not look pink. So my audition for Barry Levinson was... It was a long audition. It was this long, long monologue. I was just pink, and I thought, like, but fuck I got, it, just gotta I got do that it. job. So I do think, I mean, it does help to have, you know, some people have a, mm, tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. That's, I, it, they have, you have to sound clear. Like, I recommend getting a mic uh, and have a pretty good care. You know, and actually, if you get a, you can use an iPhone uh, if you have it shoot, you know, horizontally. And they have iPhone tripods and stuff. Because I, I didn't realize I had to taper my phone recently because I was out of town. And the resolution is... It looks pretty great. Yeah, it's better than my high HD camera I have. But uh, yeah, just we have to see you and hear you. And that's and don't have some paisley... I literally, one woman once sent me an audition. There was a paisley wallpaper behind her. Where there's, you know, things going on. In the, and it's like, just, just use common sense. How concerned are you about a, like a button on the end of a scene? If there's really... Because a lot of actors are going for yeah. these roles that are like waiter number three, and there's not you know, there's not an arc. They might have yeah. a beat or two. If it's yeah, that's, a, that's like a, how do they? You ask good questions. I've done that, and I actually joke about it. Like there's a button, um, <laughs> but if there's if it really ends, I've done stuff, but only it's so hard to to encourage people to do that because it's like. It's like drive responsibly, <laughs> because some scenes kind of need it, and you can feel. And again, like I'm an old, older person now, and I think I can trust my judgment. And I am, uh, I use discretion, but there's times where I've added a button, where because it really does need sort of a something. But I wouldn't get in the habit of doing that because, again, if you like add an ingredient, if it really needs something. But some people aren't don't don't have enough time on the earth to do a good. Sometimes they're adding not a button; it's a jagged zipper. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've done that at, at times. Okay. Uh, yeah, because they often do need because it might not need it when they actually shoot it, but for the audition, it just needs a little. Something. Just a little something to make it. Yeah, end. yeah. 
Well, yeah. tell me the story, and I don't remember if I read this or if I heard somebody tell me, or maybe I've heard you tell me. But it's been it's been a while. Tell me how you got your script to somebody who could hire you to be a writer. Oh, isn't this a good story? Yeah, it, it's but it's not your. T- I remember I did a after I had been writing for a few years. I did a like you know I was invited to do a symposium and like how to become a successful writer. Well, let's go back. So when did you start yeah. writing? Well, it was sort of uh, again that was something I never intended to do. It was more. I, again, by accident, one morning in 19, would have been about 1998, maybe, or so. To find out exactly when it was, and to hear how Steve got to start writing, and what it was like to work with Tyler Perry, tune in next week for part two. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. It's your monthly dose of art curated by Pinecone Turkey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening.